Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Liz, can we ask, we'd like, we'd like you to share uh, whatever you'd like to share about your marriage to Phil and the process uh, of which you, you decided to begin both this community and, and a family um, in 1973 and 74. So how did, how did Jonah House come to be? How did you, how did you choose uh, that name? Mm-hmm. Well, Jonah House came to be because we had a recognition that there was a need for a community of resistance where people could act, take the consequences, and have a place they could come home to, which would be home, where during whatever the consequences of that action they would be supported, and they would have a home to come home to. Um, You know, it's very, very hard to take those kinds of risks when you are trying to earn a living and pay rent or pay mortgage or whatever. And it seemed to us that there was a need for that kind of community. And while there were Catholic worker communities that have done that and continue to do that kind of support, they tended to be, mm, what, how do you put this, less, um, less of a sense of permanence to them, more transient. People come and go, it seems, much more quickly. And that was the concept behind um, trying to establish a community that would help to develop a sense of community in itself and about it. So we spent some time, really a year of meeting and planning and working to make that happen. And moved into a rental house in inner city Baltimore in June of 1973, after Phil and I were married. Um, and we remained in that house for 23 years. That's the one, Chad, that you knew so well. Anyhow, um, we did not make a decision to have a family. We had a family. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Liz, um, in in 1976, um, I came to, to Jonah House following... LaDawn Sheets, who I'd met earlier that year, and that's where I first lived in 1933 Park Avenue. Um, Your uh, at that time was doing actions at the Pentagon and the White House. Talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. the of resistance and family and community life um, during that period, and maybe maybe you might even have a LaDawn story. uh, And Everybody's dying to know the story behind this picture um, that your daughter unearthed um, a few months ago. So, got got a few stories. Okay. Um, 
Well, we began the uh, community keeping a focus on the war in Vietnam. That was 73. And our troops were thrown out of Vietnam in April of 1975. Um, we began to feel that we needed to make a change about 1974. And it was Alexander Haig, I believe, who was Secretary of War at the time. And he began talking about a change of our nuclear policy from MAD, mutually assured destruction, which is what it had been since really the end of World War II, to what he named FTO, Flexible and Strategic Targeting Options. And as we read about that policy change, it was rather... Um, rather daunting, because it meant two things, uh, basically. It meant a changing of our targeting of away from Soviet cities, which was part of the mutually assured destruction, and onto Soviet weapons sites. And the idea being to destroy their weapons before they could be used. And as we began reading and reflecting on what this meant, it became clear to us that the nation was talking about A, developing a first-strike nuclear capability, and B, um, you know, really going ahead and, if not using it, at least threatening to use it. Uh, but we decided to stay with the war in Vietnam until that was finished, and do the studying and the updating that we could do. So our first actions, once we were thrown out of Vietnam in April of 1975, um, brought us to the White House. And we had learned about this proposal to use salt mines in wherever we had them as um, bomb shelters. And that seemed like digging graves. So we began digging graves, and we dug some graves on the White House lawn. And, you know, in the days when it was possible to get into the White House and do tours through it, you could also open and display banners. And that picture was taken on the driveway in front of the White House facing Pennsylvania Avenue. And people had poured blood on the front pillars of the White House. And we were walking with banners up and down the driveway. And the cop grabbed my arm, one of my arms, as you can see behind my back. And I wanted the banner to show a little bit longer, so I grabbed it with my teeth and my other hand. So that's right in front of the White House, that, that picture. Um, yeah, Ladon. Ladon had been at uh, Koinonia in Americus, Georgia. He had been an IBM executive, a rising star in that. And he used to say, you can take Ladon out of IBM, but you can't take IBM out of Ladon. Mm -hmm. um, 
he would do some traveling and speaking, and whenever his traveling brought him anywhere in the vicinity of Baltimore, that were on the way to where he was going, he would call and come by, and we would always have a very, very powerful evening with him. As you know, he was one for good, solid conversation. And he began sharing with us this. Um, they had, of course, made him director at Koinonia. And as director, he wanted Koinonia to stop taking, you know, tax out of people's paychecks. And said we should not be tax collectors for this war effort. And that did not get backing from the Board of Trustees. So he felt in conscience he needed to quit and then called and said one day in 1975, I'm quitting, can I come? We said, come. <laughs> so he and Jay joined us at that time, Jay Dudgeon. Um, and introduced a, a beautiful um, dynamic into the community of which was very, very reflective. And you know, he continued to do the traveling and speaking that he was doing. A lot of us did that kind of work. And would often bring friends into the house and conversations were powerful and life-giving. Um, he was also good with the little people, the children. They they took to him very, very uh, strongly. And he to them. Um, we had one visitor, and Ladan said, you know, you have had a number of children. Maybe you can give us some advice about how to deal with their behavior sometimes at table where you know, Frida and Jerry learned a marvelous dynamic of making it impossible for me to be part of supper conversation. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they learned all kinds of, of dynamics. So he put this question to our guest, and the guest said, this is very memorable, well, when it comes to raising children, I think of what the scripture always says about raising children. And, you know, we all paused because you can think of maybe one or two things about children in the Gospels. He said, yes, it came to pass. It came to pass not to stay. <laughs> and when it comes to dealing with children, you have to remember that it came to pass, not to stay. <laughs> Liz, quite memorable. Very, um, important turning point in uh, the Jonah House story was the the first plowshares action, and uh, maybe you want to say a few things about that. Well. We had focused in our resistance on the uh, Pentagon. We discovered that that would be a good place to act, and we did many Pentagon actions. But um, we had friends who had a sense that there's this GE plant in King of Prussia, and they are building the Mark 12A warheads. And this is a first strike nuclear weapon. and. He said, people could get in. 
people could get in and approach those weapons. Now, you're not talking about a nuclear weapon with the nukes in it. These are in-production weapons, in production. So they are not lethal weapons yet, but they are to be lethal weapons. So they, of course, related very, very deeply to it, and others did too, and he did some recruiting and talking, and John Shushar did a fair share of recruiting, and we ended up with a group of nine people, uh, including Dan and Phil. So the group in this picture, Carl Cabot, Amar Moss, Philip, Daniel, John Shushart, um, and then front Molly, Anne, and uh, it will come to me. Anyhow, Dean, Dean Hammer. So they became the first Barshares group. And King of Prussia left them in the Norristown jail. And they were initially charged with maybe 20 charges. Um, they were initially on like a million dollars bail. It came down some, Dan came out, the Jesuits put up bail for him, and they encouraged, I guess it was Anne and Dean to come out, also. But Phil, Elma, and John remained in. John was an attorney, and John began a dynamic that went on in Norristown, which went on with them where they would charge people with umpteen crimes and then get them to plea bargain to a couple. And he began working with the men and helping them. And more and more of them were taking their cases to trial. <laughs> so they had to get rid of them. And literally, in the middle of January, the action was the 9th of September, we get a phone call that <clears throat> Carl, Phil, John, and Elmer are on the street with their boxes. And nobody knew. And they didn't even sign an agreement to appear for trial. Though they did definitely appear for trial. Um, so the trial was really an intense experience. And it began to open many people's minds to the fact that there can be more of this. They called themselves the Plowshares Eight. Sweet in Connecticut was a focus of a number of actions, and then a similar facility in Rhode Island. Um, and then we came with a focus on Griffiths Air Force Base, where they were re-retrofitting B-52 bombers that had done so much of the damage in Vietnam to now be carrier launchers for air launch cruise missiles. 
and we went into a hangar at Griffiths Air Force Base and hammered and poured blood on the B-52 and then on five engines for B-52s and for some of the escort planes. And we were charged with um, sabotage in that trial. We were looking at a very, very long time. It was also the first plowshares action that was federal because uh, the previous actions had been at corporations that were producing equipment for the uh, federal for the Department of War. And um, that trial was held in Syracuse. It went on for five weeks. We were able to put on a number of extraordinary witnesses. And the result was that we were acquitted of sabotage. We were convicted of destruction of government property. We were convicted of trespass. We were convicted of conspiracy to destroy government property, but not of sabotage. So the three men involved and I were given three years, and the other three women two years in prison. And, you know, we, it was close to what we had anticipated getting. So that's, uh, and then these actions continued. Um, the next action was against the Euro missiles. And this was the time when the resistance to this first strike nuclear capability went pretty much global, at least into Europe. And the Europeans began acting, Germany, Scotland, England, New Zealand, Australia. Um, so those, those actions continued um, and, and are continuing, I think, more in Europe. And, of course, New Zealand and Australia have had some wonderful actions of late. So, yeah, <laughs> indeed, the, the, the plowshares uh, witness really spawned a whole um, tradition of nonviolent direct action in the same way that Catonsville had done um, yeah. mm -hmm. 15 years earlier. Um, yeah. Now, Liz... Um, had two very recent actions that should be uh, just at least acknowledged, and one was the Disarm Now plowshares out at the um, Trident submarine base in, um, in the state of Washington. And people served, you know, a year, six months to a year for that action. But just recently, just uh, last month, three friends, Megan Rice, Greg Borchi, Obed, and Michael Wally, the Transform Now plowshares, were convicted in Knoxville, Tennessee. And they are convicted of sabotage in their action against um, the... Uh, <clears throat> the Oak Ridge facility down there. And they are looking at very, very serious time and are being looked at as terrorists. It's, it's a big one. It's a big one. Now, you and, and many of these activists have done a lot of traveling and speaking. And Liz is a, a magnificent speaker and teacher, but also a writer. and. Those of you who are looking to see some of her 
words. This is a book that she and Phil wrote in 1989, and fortunately for us, it's been republished thanks to the Catholic Worker Reprint series and is available from Whippenstock. Mm -hmm. um, I think we want to, because we're mindful of the time, we want to be sure and get to another major chapter in the history of Jonah House. Yeah, Liz, we wanted to ask how you, how St. Peter's, the move to St. Peter's, the uh, decision to leave the inner city and, and move out to uh, the cemetery, how did that, that come about and, and uh, how did you imagine that together as a community? Yeah, well, you know, we're still in the inner city. I, this yes, cemetery exists right in the inner city that this south fence line has projects on the other side of that fence. And the east fence is a whole row of row houses. And the north fence is a, is a tire recycling plant that uh, puts us in touch. And the helicopters fly overhead. The police are there all the time and so on and so forth. Um, Chad, well, both of you will know, and anybody who ever visited us on Park Avenue there, what a, you know, interesting name for an address that was far from Park Avenue-ish, as we think of Park Avenue. It was a row house. It was the center row house. It was 14 feet wide, you know. And you had windows in the front and windows in the back and a house on either side of it. The living room was such that you could not have a circle of more than eight people. You know, it had to be broken up and twisted around. And being a row house, you could never get rid of the cockroaches. They would go next door and then come back and go next door and come back. So we fought that for 23 years. And, you know, I think a lot of people were talking about at, at that time about you know, the idea of having space for gardens, space for, you know, kids, space for uh, trees and, you know, a vitality. Our backyard was a postage stamp. It was 14 feet wide and maybe 16 feet deep. And it had our wood pile and our clothesline and that was it. There was no room for anything else. So it was a dream and a vision and the little house that you see here, the little stucco house, had just been refurbished by the restoration, the cemetery restoration. It was an old Irish cemetery going back to 1851. And um, it had, um, the Irish all left Baltimore when the neighborhood changed and didn't come back. And there was no perpetual care fund for this cemetery, and the place just went completely to seed. And people who came and saw the state of it and the abuse that it was getting in the neighborhood were horrified. So this one group of Irish got together and established the restoration um, foundation. And they were responsible for redoing the little caretaker's cottage and putting a kitchen and bathroom on it. It just had an outhouse before. And they were looking for somebody who would go in there and live there and be a deterrent to crime in the cemetery. So we said, yeah, well, that looks very nice, but the house is too small. We'd have to build. 
And no problem, said our friend Vinnie Quayle, who was head of the foundation. And it wasn't no problem. It was lots of problems. But we did it. You know, in the course of a year, over 100 people volunteered their time and their energy and many people funds to build that house. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful center through these years. And we've got garden space and we've had animals and who help to maintain the place and clear it and enliven it. And it's been a very welcoming uh, place. The, we planted probably about 300, 400 trees since we've been here. And they are growing, and they are beautiful. I want to uh, talk a bit more about that in a minute. But first, um, one of the sacred places in yeah. the cemetery where Phil is buried at, in 2002, less than four months after we put Madonna in the ground in California, after four months of hospice. That was our community webinar story last summer. Uh, and mm -hmm. Dennis attends here with us on this webinar tonight. Um, that webinar, by the way, is available for download from our webinar archive. But uh, shortly after that, your beloved Philip passed into the cloud of witnesses after a similar hospice journey. Anything you want to say about how that journey affected the community's growth? Well, Phil was diagnosed um, with cancer in October, like October 6th. He died December 6th, so that was two months. He had one chemo treatment and said no more. And we came back from the hospital and went into hospice. And I think two weeks of hospice was about all we had. And the thing, it was an, it was an amazing circle of people and it was an amazing period of time, Phil was, okay, I'm dying. I'm ready to go. And as soon as he said to Jerry, I want you to make my coffin and I want you to write this statement, um, then, and we had the last rites. He, he was ready and impatient, as it was part of his personality, not surprising. Um, and I once had to say to him, you know, it's a lot harder than you think. You're, you're going to be alive for the, for the last rites. It's only a few hours away. This dying business takes a bit longer than that, man. So, um, when you have that kind of spirit working around you, it's not something you say, no, 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 you can't go. You know, this man was ready to go. And, you know, right after his death, we begin a war in Iraq, another war in Iraq, and we're already in Afghanistan. And I found myself grateful that he didn't have to witness that. Um, it's quite a time. The stone is right there in the cemetery. One of the things he wanted was to be buried in this cemetery. And our friend Vinny got to the Cardinal this Saturday after Thanksgiving, and Cardinal Keeler said, well, that's the least we can do for Philip Arrogant. So 
our neighbors literally dug the grave for us. And yeah, it was a very, very powerful time. Very memorable time. Thanks for bringing it up. And one of the last places Phil and I went together was to California and to the LA Catholic Worker Sister Community Retreat. And we sat, I sat with you and Dennis and Tenzi getting your experience of the whole hospice with Ladon. Um, we had an easier scene in terms of time. It was much, much more limited. And also in terms of burial. We live in a cemetery. It was not hard to get him from the house to the cemetery. And we could dig our own hole and fill it in and all of that. But very, very powerful. His presence is constant. The image that you see was was from our friend Bill McNichols, who does these beautiful icons. He did the icon of Phil underneath it. But his vision was of the flowering cross. And it was his sense that embraced the cross flowers. If you resist it, it doesn't. And it was his sense that Phil had embraced that. Very, very beautiful, powerful time. Thank you. Well, Liz, let's talk about some of the other aspects of the grounds. <laughs> you know, it's funny that I uh, said that you moved outside of the inner city, because I've been to the new Jonah House at St. Peter's many times, and it is such an incredible oasis in the middle of inner city. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so many of us, and the younger generation is so uh, interested in uh, food growing and preservation and animal, animal husbandry, and I have always been so delighted to see the incredible work that you've done there. So can you talk a little bit about your work with the animals and, and the, how much food you're producing? <clears throat> Well, I have to share that at this moment, our animals are down to the wild cats and the one domesticated cat and four guinea fowl. Um, I had surgery, hip surgery in January and had not been able to do much work with them. And the two donkeys that we had, the standard donkey, had gotten pretty pissy about that and was getting hard to handle. And I knew I couldn't couldn't uh, work with her for some time to come. So we found a new home for them. And then we had this, this picture shows the first of our Nubian goats, Paul and Silas. Silas is the lighter goat in the back there, and he was always an escape artist. So they, you, you can't be spending every hour of every day chasing and catching them. And our most recent goats uh, got into the same thing, except all three of them were getting out constantly. So we found a new home for them. And the one remaining llama, we had to put the older llama down a couple of years ago. She had an infection that kept coming back. At this point, we're leaving whatever comes next in terms of animals to the people who will be taking over here. <clears throat> and I think that uh, the timing on that is really good. 
You're looking here at the compost tumblers. It's the only way we can do compost in the inner city that isn't food for rats. And you also see the hoop house, and not, I think that's garlic in front of it. Um, so <clears throat> the garden is doing well, though we have um, acquired deer on the property in the last year. And so we have to take all kinds of steps to keep the deer from eating all the food that we're trying to put away. But we're, we're succeeding. Mostly this is artists' work. And asparagus and snoopies and beans are what we're getting at this point, as well as peaches and uh, strawberries and blueberries. So, and lettuce, lots of lettuce. Oh, that sounds wonderful, and I will not forget seeing the shelves of canned goods in your freezer full of wonderful food. Yes, you know, another, it's great. Another, it is. And another thing that really struck me about Jonah House um, is its, its simple elegance. It is such a beautiful place, and you talked about the hundreds of the hundred people that came and helped you build that. And, but it's also filled um, with beauty inside. And I wonder, will you talk a moment um, about being an artist? Um, and in recent years, having the time to, to paint and sharing your beautiful paintings. We have a couple of them. How did you, you know, move into that and make the time for that? Well, it's really consequence of Willa Bickham, who's uh, married to Brendan Walsh, and they have been the Catholic workers in Baltimore and friends for 45, 50 years. And that relationship is uh, and has been significant all these years. But um, Willa paints, she is an artist, and she has painted with a couple of other women for many, many years. So she encouraged it, and I said, okay, I'll give it a try, and have enjoyed that process very, very much. Um, and we have uh, had a show each year that we painted together, and we called it the Monday Night Masters Art Show. And it was at Vita House, and so it was not nothing pretentious about it. Our friends all came, and I think they were surprised that it was as good as it was. They didn't expect that. But at any rate, um, it's a good social opportunity, and, you know, mostly that's it. But it's, it's a joy to have that as part of my life. I don't do it as much as I would like to, and, yeah, um, it's added a lot. It's added a lot. Um, so we're, um, we're continuing. I'm continuing with it. Thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. You do beautiful work, and it's, it's wonderful to see you do that, because you do beautiful work. Thank you. Know, you. The, one of the questions we'd like to put before you, uh, when I was giving a bit of an introduction, claiming you as you know, our mentor, you have mentored hundreds of young activists, some of us uh, 
getting gray in the hair, not so young anymore. But can you, how do you see your role as a mentor and in light of the transition that you and Artis and Carol are now going to make at Jonah House? So how, how is your mentoring going to continue and how do you see that role? Well, um, we have sent out a letter to many people. I don't know how many of the folks participating tonight uh, have received that, but um, we are making changes. We have two young couples who are moving into the house. Um, the first ones will arrive within the next week or two, and then the other couple by mid-August. And by the end of August, we'll start moving toward two distinct but related communities. Um, and I've been motivated in this. When our daughter Frida was born, her uncle Dan wrote a series of poems for Frida, which when she was maybe eight or nine, I lettered into a book. Phil and I pasted pictures of her into that book, and then we wrote a little introduction saying, these are poems that your uncle wrote for you when you were born. You may understand some of them now, but you will come to understand them in time. And um, we hope that you will begin to use this book for your own thoughts. And she's been doing journaling ever since that time. That was her first journal. But one of those poems has stood out for me, and it goes something like this. I am about, puff, puff, to admit you to a secret wisdom. To it, there are no secrets. And what little wisdom you will come on will lie at the end of your own room. These words wish you well and promise, unlike the debris that clings a stench something stinking, shining like dead cat's eyes to keep the hell out of your way. And I think one of the things Art of Carol and I are aware of is the need to keep the hell out of their way. There's much that we know we need to share and impart. We need to let them know what we've done and why we've done it and how we've done it and then say, but it's yours now. You have to decide what you're going to continue doing, what you're not going to continue doing, and how. And um, that's what we're kind of focused on at this point. And by the end of this year, certainly, we will be living in the old caretaker's house. And they will, as community, and they will be in the house that we built with the help of so many others, um, distinct and yet somewhat related. I think that we recognize that as part of the aging process, our lifestyles are very different from the lifestyles of younger people, and they should be. And they ought to be able to decide how they want to do what they want to do. So that's... Um, we're really trying to give serious thought to this transition, and I think we're doing that. Um, so far, so good. But it's a lot of, uh, 
We want to do it and get out of the way. You know, to be there when that's desired, but not to be in anybody's face. And not to expect that they are going to live as we live. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Liz, thank you. Um... You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.